Good morning, all. Well, it continues to be a full season at Southwest as we inch our way toward the beginning of a new school year. Uh, Personally, it was a full, rich, and rewarding week uh, for me as uh, last week a team of 16 of us went on a four-day mission trip to the Appalachia region of eastern Kentucky. Uh, You might see I have on my shirt, you know know how to pronounce it, Appalachia. And uh, I've seen others who are on the trip, they have their shirts on. So if you see someone with that, ask them about their experience. Uh, But we arrived uh, last Sunday night and we left around noon on Wednesday. So it was a quick turnaround, quick kind of a trip. Uh, Some of us uh, were on a crew. We built a new wall at a partner church of Crossroads Missions that uh, this trip was through. Uh, Some of us built a wheelchair ramp for someone's home. Uh, Some of us got very well acquainted with mulch and wheelbarrows with some landscaping projects. And some, like me, were put on painting detail. Uh, So how this happens is either before the trip or when you arrive, they like going around kind of the circle and say, hey, what are you good at or even what are you not good at? And I told some, I'm just going to stop telling people that I have experience in painting because every single time I end up on a painting crew. And some of you know, like, again, it needs to be done. It's important, but I'm I'm just over it. (laughs) Anyway, um, despite being on the paint crew this year, though, I didn't do a lick of painting. You might see some, uh, most of our painting had to be done at high heights, and my job was to hold the ladder. So for two solid days, my job was, and every few minutes I got to say, yes, I'm still holding. And that was my mission trip experience this year. Important job, but maybe not as glamorous. Even though we would have uh, liked to have been down there a little longer, we were still thankful to partner with Crossroads Missions Appalachia. And uh, they've been down there for many years, and their overall desire is to improve the standard of living, raise expectations, and find hope in the grace of Christ for families in eastern Kentucky. Uh, They are doing a wonderful, impactful ministry, and we'll certainly be excited to return next year, and hopefully many more of us from Southwest can attend. So we wanted to celebrate that. Uh, Before I pray for us and go into the message, one other piece of celebration. Uh, Many of you have been following um, the journey, the uh, recovery journey of our senior minister, Roger Hendricks, as he recovers from his bone marrow transplant last month. Um, All signs point to his recovery going very well. Uh, Even Larry got to spend a couple hours with him a week or two ago, and it's looking good. But we want to take some time this morning, today, July 30th, is his and Jane's 40th wedding anniversary. And uh, yeah, clap, because I know Roger typically watches on the live stream. So Roger, Jane, congratulations on 40 years. Um, so everyone, flood, flood his Facebook page, flood their Instagram pages, just major congratulations. So much love from us to you guys. Uh, so it's a monumental feat. Uh, pray with me, and then we'll continue on our morning together. <clears throat> Father, first and foremost, maybe even selfishly, I pray for my own heart and my own calm as it has been um, a good week but a busy one, and maybe help me and even others in the room Can we slow ourselves down and um, give your word the time and attention and focus it deserves? We're talking about pride this morning, which I'm convinced every single one of us to some extent is um, guilty of that sin. So help us hear um, pitfalls of this. Help us hear your heart toward uh, pride. Help us pursue humility. And uh, part of being one of your son's disciples is that we are allowing Jesus to change our hearts. So we pray to have the 
humility and obedience to receive any guidance or direction or correction uh, when it comes to the pride in our lives. In Jesus' name, we all pray together. Amen. Well, going through and even selecting some of those photos from the Appalachia trip, I was reminded that we have a number of photographers that attend Southwest, some amateur and some are a little more serious about it. And we even have a kind of a new volunteer photography team that captures moments, ministry moments around the building on Sunday mornings. Well, in the photography world, if you are good enough or if you are passionate enough or even if you are just in the right place at the right time, you might have a photo worthy of submitting to a contest of any number of kinds. Uh, There are many photo contests out there, but probably my favorite one that I'm aware of is the Comedy Wildlife Photography Contest. Some of you might be familiar with this. They have pictures like this. They just kind of capture these uh, entertaining, funny uh, moments from nature. And the entire point of, sure, is to capture funny or amusing scenes from nature. And beyond that, what makes uh, many of these photos funny is that Many of these cute or ferocious animals are caught in an embarrassing or even a humiliating moment. Or put another way, maybe their pride has been stripped away from them. Well, roughly 200 years ago, a man by the name of John Martin submitted not a photograph, but a painting to a contest put on by the British Institute all the way back in 1821. And John Martin even won first prize, which came with a cash reward of what would be nearly $25,000 today. His painting is entitled Belshazzar's Feast, and the painting looks like that, this rich oil painting, which depicts the biblical story we're covering today in Daniel 5. Kind of looking here, you see the feast in the foreground, lots of people in the background. Up in the sky, you see uh, just ziggurats and a massive tower, moon over here. It is a party that we're going to hear about here in a moment. But if ever there was a prime example of the phrase, pride comes before the fall, it would be the example of King Belshazzar. After this morning's message, we will have reached the halfway point of this series that we're calling Living in Babylon. This series is exploring the extraordinary life of an exile named Daniel. In Daniel, in the midst of a foreign land and under the rule of powerful empires, Daniel remains steadfast in his commitment to God, uh, steadfast in displaying unyielding integrity, unwavering faith, and prophetic insight. And through Daniel's encounters with kings and his divine wisdom, we witness the power of unwavering faith to shape history itself. From interpreting dreams and visions to facing the fiery furnace, Daniel teaches us that no matter how fierce the challenges may be, our faith can overcome even the most daunting of trials. Many of you are uh, TV watchers like I am, and it's popular for many TV series to do time jumps with their characters. You know, so many seasons in one particular setting, and they might jump five, ten, even more years than that to expand the story. Well, when we first met Daniel in the very beginning of this series, he was roughly about 15 years old. Well, this morning we're doing a time jump. In Daniel chapter 5, Daniel is roughly 80 years old, and some scholars are confident enough to put him right at 82 years old. But despite that age, he is still faithfully serving and representing God in this hostile Babylonian culture. 
If you want to follow along, we'll be in Daniel 5 today, and we're actually going to cover the entirety of the chapter, but don't let that scare us. We'll get through it well. So it'll be up on the screen, but feel free to follow along in your hard copy Bible or your Bible app. The first four verses, setting the scene. Many years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for 1,000 of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, who we've heard about and learned about before, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem all the way back in 605 BC. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. So they brought these gold cups taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. While they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Daniel 5, verse 1, picks up on the date of October 12, 539 B.C. History has this date down to that very specific time. And as you can see from this next slide, there's been some time since King Nebuchadnezzar has been on the throne. So up here, uh, many years, let's see, what's that, roughly 40 years that Nebuchadnezzar was um, on the throne. He was king of Babylon. Then you have a couple of goofy names. By the way, if you're after baby names, consider, <laughs> actually don't, these are actually really, really evil names. Um, but Amal Marduk, Nereglissar, Labashi Marduk, I'm doing my best making this up. But you can kind of see after Nebuchadnezzar, n not a whole lot of longevity. Uh, number two, Amal Marduk, just a couple of years he served in the role. Uh, Nereglissar, just a couple, like four years in the role as king. Uh, history, if you want to check out, you know, uh, just do your research. Labashi Marduk, he only served for a couple of months as king of Babylon. And then uh, we have Nabodinus here at the bottom. Uh, he served for, what, that 17 years, something like that. Um, normally, I'm like, okay, even good with pronouncing names, but for whatever reason, that last one, Nabodinus, has given me trouble. Uh, I want to say, you know, Nabonidus and switch it all that, and then I'm like, should I just call him King Nabo? That'll be easier. And then I thought of, like, pronounced Nabodinus, but then I just had, like, some weird vision of the future where I'm in some doctor's office, and he says, Mr. Beale, I'm so sorry, we found a Nabodinus growth. You only... <laughs> so, <laughs> all that say, sometimes you can have fun with these names. Anyway, that last guy, Nabonidus, uh, he was certainly 539, where we're actually picking up. He was king during that time. You'll find that history backs that up. Um, but while Nabodinus was king of Babylonia at large, the entire empire, the entire kingdom, a man named Belshazzar, who we've read about, was king or ruler over just the city of Babylon itself. Anyway, I don't know how much you noticed in those first four verses how much the word drank and wine were used, but that's very much on purpose. Uh, on this night, Belshazzar, he is throwing a rager. He is having a drunken party, and he is showing off for 1,000 of his nobles. The alcohol is running freely. You can imagine the red solo cups. Everyone has them in their hands. It is filled to the rim. But this party is one filled with pride and arrogance, because something that's not immediately clear from the text, but is happening in history, is while they're having this party right in downtown uh, Babylon, is surrounding the city and the city gates are the Medes and the Persians, and they are about ready to take this city. However, much like it was bragged about that the Titanic was unsinkable, King Belshazzar is convinced and confident that no one can take down the great city of Babylon. 
So while the Medes and the Persians are about to take over the city, he is having a party. That is the level of pride and arrogance going on with this king right now. Well, anyway, as he's carrying on, you know, again, again, just think drunk. Like it is that kind of party. In the midst of this, the cups they have aren't good enough, and he kind of knows, wants to, again, impress some people around. He wants to drink out of the gold cups that were formerly from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And even though King Nebuchadnezzar would have taken these, what, roughly 60 years prior, these would have had like, an, uh, like a pretty prominent place in the palace of saying, hey, look at these fancy cups that once upon a time uh, were captured and now they belong to us. So they're drinking from these gold and silver cups that were from the temple of God back in Jerusalem, and in their drunken partying, they begin to worship and praise their own gods, their own idols. Now, there are many things that we could say about King Belshazzar at this moment. None of them good. But since this message is ultimately about the sins of pride and arrogance, we're going to take note of two factors that hurt him. Number one, King Belshazzar was indifferent to the situation that he was in. Again, he was surrounded by danger and defeat, and he did not care. He was happy to ignore reality and delude himself into thinking that nothing bad could ever happen to him or his kingdom. He was untouchable in his own mind. He was indifferent. The other piece is he was irreverent. As opposed to King Nebuchadnezzar in uh, chapter 3 of Daniel last week, Belshazzar had no regard or respect for God. And we're going to see that indifference and irreverence is a deadly combination. Verse 5, things take a turn. Suddenly, they saw the fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand, so it would have been well lit. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright. His knees knocked together in fear, and his legs gave way beneath him. The king shouted for the enchanters, the astrologers, and the fortune tellers to be brought before him. And he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever can read this writing and tell me what it means will be dressed in purple robes of royal honor and will have a gold chain placed around his neck. He will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. A miracle is unfolding before their very eyes. Fingers appear out of nowhere and start writing words on the wall. So why fingers? This seems like an odd thing. Many miracles are odd. If you're an astute uh, biblical reader, you might know that phrase, you know, the finger of God and how powerful it is just to communicate, even with God's finger, how much he can change things. This is very much on theme for displaying the power of God. For instance, Warren Wearsby, uh, a now deceased scholar, writes this, it was the finger of God that defeated the Egyptians when Pharaoh refused to let the people go, and the finger of God that wrote the holy law, that would be uh, the Ten Commandments for Israel on the tablets of stone. Jesus said that he cast out demons by the finger of God, and now the finger of God was writing a warning to the Babylonian leaders that the hand of God would very soon execute judgment. Belshazzar is terrified, and rightly so. And in trying to figure out what's going on, he makes the same foolish choice that every other Babylonian king has been making, and he seeks out worldly solutions 
in enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers for help. He's going after worldly solutions and ideas for his problems. Well, that never helps. When it comes to enchanters, astrologers, fortune tellers, they never help, and there's no help or truth to be found in such people even today. Verse 10. But when the queen mother heard what was happening, she hurried to the banquet hall. She said to Belshazzar, Long live the king. Don't be so pale and frightened. There is a man in your kingdom who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight, understanding, and wisdom like that of the gods. Your predecessor, the king, your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief over all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers of Babylon. This man, Daniel, whom the king nicknamed Belteshazzar, has exceptional ability and is filled with divine knowledge and understanding. He can interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. Verse 13, so Daniel was brought in before the king. The king asked him, are you Daniel, one of the exiles brought from Judah by my predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar? I have heard that you had the spirit of the gods within you and that you are filled with insight, understanding, and wisdom. My wise men and enchanters have tried to read the words on the wall and tell me their meaning, but they cannot do it. I am told that you can give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read these words and tell me their meaning, you will be clothed in purple robes of royal honor and you will have a gold chain placed around your neck. You will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Daniel answered the king, keep your gifts or give them to someone else, but I will tell you what the writing means. So explaining what just happened, doing a little recap, Belshazzar's mom, who it sounds like wasn't invited to the party, which would line up, no one wants to party with mom, hears all the commotion and tries to calm down the king. Long live the king, and I love this line, and by the way, don't look so pale, by the way. It sounds like a mother line to me. Calm down, don't look so pale. Uh, so for reference, Belshazzar was likely the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar. And the queen mother is here to give a bio, kind of read through the resume of Daniel, who is still very much a part of the kingdom. And the message to King Belshazzar is this, whatever mystery is unfolding, Daniel, and only Daniel, by the way, he has the track record, can tell you what all of this means exactly. So Daniel is summoned. He's 80, 82 years old, and you just know Daniel was not awake at this hour of the night. He probably went to bed at 7 p.m. He would probably had his dinner at 3 p.m. that afternoon, lunch at 10 a.m. that morning, breakfast the night before, <laughs> but he's here now. And he doesn't care about all the perks and the gifts he's going to get if he interprets the writing on the wall. He says, keep your gifts. You can see it in your mind's eye. Keep your gifts, but I'll tell you what this means. So we're going to read a solid chunk uh, from Daniel, and he's going to start talking about King Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to contrast Nebuchadnezzar's behavior in some of the later years of his life with how Belshazzar is leading his life right now. Here's what Daniel says. He says, Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, majesty, glory, and honor to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. And by the way, Daniel's going to talk about God, our God that we still worship today, 
And just like I said at the very week, the very first week, very first Sunday of the series, is a um, underlying theme of all of Daniel is despite what it looks like who's in charge or how the world is going as empires rise and fall, that ultimately God is in control even when it seems like it's not. And we're going to see that as Daniel prophesies to Belshazzar. Anyway, God made Nebuchadnezzar so great that people of all races and nations and languages trembled before him in fear. He killed those he wanted to kill and spared those he wanted to spare. He honored those he wanted to honor and disgraced those he wanted to disgrace. But when his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. Pride and arrogance did that. He was driven from human society. Nebuchadnezzar was given the mind of a wild animal, and he lived among the wild donkeys. He ate grass like a cow, and he was drenched with the dew of heaven until, until he learned that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of the world and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. So Daniel gives Belshazzar a history lesson and a spiritual one. Now, you might notice we have skipped Daniel 4 in this series, but Daniel is catching us up to what we missed under the kingship of Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar, he was puffed up with pride and arrogance, and God took away his throne and his reputation. But he eventually learned the lesson that God is in control, that God is really on the throne, not Nebuchadnezzar. And now Daniel has some even stronger words for Belshazzar now. Verse 22. Daniel says, You are his successor, O Belshazzar, and you knew all this, yet you have not humbled yourself. For you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven and have had these cups from his temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. But you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. Daniel is saying, Belshazzar, you know better than this. And yet you've chosen to openly and brazenly defy and dishonor and disobey God who gives you life and controls your destiny. The God who is ultimately Lord, whether you like it or not. Well, those fingers on the wall, they wrote some things. We're going to see exactly what they wrote as Daniel does some translating. Verse 24, Daniel continues talking. So God has sent this hand to write this message. This is the message that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is what these words mean. Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed. You have been weighed on the balances and you have not measured up. Parson means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And then, honestly, true to his word, then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was dressed in purple robes, a gold chain was hung around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then we have that ominous phrase, verse 30, that very night, that very night Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. End of Daniel chapter 5. Sometimes when God brings judgment, he gives us time to repent and change. And other times when God brings judgment, 
he says it's too late to escape the consequences. This is one of those times. So here's how they did it. How the Medes and the Persians got into this impenetrable city of Babylon. The Euphrates River, it ran north to south, right through the center of Babylon. And what the Medes and the Persians did is they redirected that stream of the Euphrates Um, And by doing so, they kind of drained the normal flow of the river, and they were able to enter the city under the city gates and therefore to conquest. And by the way, this very destruction this night, October 12, 539 B.C., this very night, this destruction of Babylon had been predicted by the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. A reminder that God's in control of all this. Nothing's happening that God doesn't want to. He's been in control the entire time. So what are we to take home with us from this historical account from Daniel? What's the point? There are many, but hopefully we can see how God views pride. No surprise, he hates it. He doesn't dislike it, he hates it. Just a few verses from Proverbs. All who fear the Lord will hate evil. Therefore, I hate pride and arrogance, corruption and perverse speech. From Proverbs 11, pride leads to disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. From Proverbs 16, the Lord detests the proud, they will surely be punished. Many of you are readers of C.S. Lewis, and I was revisiting his great work, Mere Christianity, which is on the shelves of many of your bookshelves at home. And C.S. Lewis understands the utmost evil to be pride even so far as to calling it the complete anti-God state of mind. And if that sounds exaggerated to you like it did to me, Mr. Lewis would invite you to think that over. He would say, ask yourself how much you dislike it when other people snub you, refuse to notice you, patronize you, or just simply show off. The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. And there's a reason, by the way, I'm kind of bringing in some Lewis here, because we read a story like this of King Belshazzar, and we're like, we would never reach the heights of pride that someone in that much power would get. Well, I think Jesus would say, it's not so much how much pride you have, it's just that you have it at all. We're bringing pride, and we're talking about this just that at our level. Those of us who aren't kings, we're not princes, we're just regular men and women. Again, he says, the point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It's because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I'm so annoyed at someone else being the big noise. And we say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. Read this with me, also from Mere Christianity. Pride has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. It always means enmity, which, by the way, means hostility or ill will or animosity. And not only enmity between man and man, but man and God. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, you do not know God at all. And as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And, of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. 
The bottom line for this morning is this. God honors those who keep him on the throne. God honors those who keep him on the throne. How we're going to end is I'm going to read a parable of Jesus, and then uh, we have a baptism on this baptism Sunday to end the the service. By the way, we have three more baptisms at the end of the 11, so we're going to have a great morning. Things to celebrate together. But one of the confessions of baptism is that when we declare Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we're essentially saying, Jesus, you belong on the throne, and I don't. Here's that parable from Luke chapter 18. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Pray with me, and then we'll have a baptism. Father, let us be impacted and even changed by the words that we've heard this morning, that we can learn by the great extreme example of the indifference and irreverence from King Belshazzar and how to pursue just the opposite of that, an awareness of you and a great reverence for who you are in our lives. Help us to know and understand exactly who is on our throne and I pray your Holy Spirit just kicks us off if we're sitting on your throne. That ultimately that we would know our place and that is a good place, a place where we can worship you for all your glory and all your strength and all your love and everything that you are. In Jesus' name, we all pray together. Amen.